The scripture reading for this morning is from Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedillium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge and good of evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for the sweet spirit that you've given us here this morning from the first words we sang i have just sensed the nearness of your presence the tenderness of your presence here with us i've had a sense lord from the beginning that you've wanted to do great things in us and among us today and i pray father that you will do that and i trust that you already have done that father i trust that you've already spoken to us as we've sung to you and confessed our sins to you and spoken out our prayers to you and received from you by the Holy Spirit. 
And now, God, I pray that you'd be with me and be upon me as I speak about Genesis 2. I pray that you would make your word live for your people. I pray that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonders in your word. I pray that because of what we see, we would adore you and worship you and dedicate ourselves to living all of our lives for you. Father, you are amazing and you've done amazing things. So again, now I pray, please, for the glory of your name and the joy of our souls, please open our eyes in Jesus' name. Amen. Moses wrote in Genesis 2, 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. In the same way that I think Genesis 1-1 stands as a sort of a, a title over chapter 1, I think Genesis 2-4 stands as a sort of a title over chapter 2. If you're reading from chapter 1 on and you get to chapter 2 verse 4, you might kind of scratch your head a little bit and wonder to yourself what Moses is doing. You might think to yourself, didn't you just tell me the story of the generations of the heavens and the earth? And if you did, why are you now saying that again? Are you repeating the story? Is Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, are they, are they two separate stories or are they, are they one story with, with one theme? Are they contradictory? Are they complementary? What's going on exactly? Why, if you just told us the story, are you now introducing the story again? Well, there are some who do suggest that Genesis 1 and 2 are different accounts of creation, much like the four Gospels of the New Testament are put together. Same basic story told by different points of view. Others, however, suggest that the two chapters are complementary and are, in fact, a fabric and a part of one single story. And I myself believe the second version. I believe that Genesis 1 and 2 tell the same story. And what I see Moses doing is in chapter 1, he's giving us a big overview of creation. And from there, he begins to hone his attention down on smaller and smaller details until he focuses in chapter 2 on the creation of humankind and on what it means to be created in the image of God. There in verse 4, that word generations, or some of your Bibles read history or accounts, that word literally means in the Hebrew, a genealogy. And if you look at the use of the word in the Bible, it's always and only used when it's describing the history of a person's lineage or a person's family. Therefore, it's clear to me that at the beginning of chapter 1, Moses lifts our eyes up with a great big telescope to see God creating at the size of the universe, and then he begins to focus our attention, first now on the earth and the land that was created and the vegetation that was created, then on the animals and the birds of the air that were created, then on humankind that he created in his image, and now in chapter 2, he focuses specifically on the details of the creation of humankind and what it means to be made in the image of God. By Genesis 2.25, in fact, we've honed down so closely that we're actually getting a peek into the culture and the psychology of the first marriage on the earth. He tells us in that verse a little bit about what it was like to be Adam and Eve. So in chapter 1, he starts off with a really big view, and all the way to the end of chapter 2, he's honing down our attention onto the, the, the relationship between the first human beings. So, I believe with all my heart that one author wrote Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 with one purpose in mind. And when he says in verse 4, this is the generations of the heavens and the earth, he's now talking about the creation of humankind and in the very beginnings of our story. I hope that as we progress through chapter 2 today, you'll see more and more the unity that is there. So with that, 
Let's turn our attention to verses 5 and 9, and we'll just make our way right to 18 through 25, which I do believe is at the heart of what Genesis 2 is all about. In verse 5, when Moses writes that there was no bush of the field yet in the land, and there was no small plant of the field yet had sprung up, he's not referring to the vegetation that he mentioned in chapter 1, verses 11 through 12. Rather, he's referring to the thorns and thistles that he talks about in Genesis 3.18 that came about as a result of the curse. So don't get the picture in your mind that just before God created the man in chapter 2 that the earth was void of all kinds of vegetation because that would be contradictory of chapter 1. Chapter 1 is very clear that the vegetation was created a couple of days before the man and Moses is not contradicting himself here in chapter 2. He's using very specific words that mean thorns and thistles. And he's writing to people that, remember, they lived in a desert land. They lived in an arid land. I grew up in a land like that. I saw tumbleweeds all over the place. I know what thorns and thistles look like. And the people that first read this would have had that in their mind. And Moses is saying to them, listen, Adam's world was not like our world. It was not filled with these kinds of bushes and thorns and thistles. Rather, it was plush. It was green. It was full of life. It had not even rained upon the earth. So what I hear Moses saying is, I'm talking about a different time. Talking about the time between the creation of the world and the great floods of Noah. So, the, the picture again is not that the earth was void of vegetation. It was filled just as in chapter 1, and it was lush, and there Adam was. In that time, in that kind of context, the Lord God formed a man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature or a living soul. In Hebrew, the word is nefesh means a soul or a creature or, or a living being, something like that. The way that the Hebrew reads here is that the Lord God formed Adam out of the ground, which in Hebrew is Adamah. So the ground is Adamah, and out of the Adamah, God formed Adam. God created an, an earthly creature out of the ground, just as he had created the birds and the beasts out of the ground. Now the man obviously was distinct from the birds and the beasts because he alone was created in the image of God, right? There's nothing else in all of creation that is said to be created in the image of God. But I think that Adam's point in showing that the man, Adam, came out of the ground, Adamah, is to say that this man was not God. He was not a spirit being that took on flesh on the earth. Many to this day are tempted to think like that of men and women, especially of great men and women. I think Moses is clearly saying that's not true. Men are of the earth. Human beings are of the earth. We're of the ground. We're earthly creatures. We're not angels in disguise. We're not God in disguise. We are created in the image of God, but we are earthly people. He alone is the creator. We are his creation. And yes, we do have the privilege of imaging his being, but we can never get this out of whack. He is God and we are not. I think that's the point of saying that Adam came out of Adama. Having thus created the man, the Lord God planted a garden for him and he called that garden Eden. And he planted that so that the man would have a suitable place to live. And then he said that out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the eyes and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The word Eden, the name of the garden, means delight. And so you could think of this not just as the Garden of Eden, but think of it as the Garden of Delight. 
And in that garden of delight, God caused many things to sprout and grow that would be pleasurable to the man. And that's a really important thing. I take from that that God's design for human beings was that we should be happy. His design for that first man was that he would know a fullness of pleasure and indulge himself in good, godly pleasure. He designed a garden that would stimulate all of his physical senses, that would be aesthetically pleasing, aesthetically beautiful. God did not have to do it that way. God put the man in a place that would give him sort of that, that wow, this place is amazing kind of feeling. This last summer we camped up on the North Shore. There were many times when we were hiking around that I had that feeling as I saw a lake or a river or whatever. The trees, the mountains, looking over Lake Superior. Many times I felt like my breath was taken away. Just like, wow, this is beautiful. God is awesome. God created that kind of environment for the man because He wanted the man to have pleasure. He wanted him to have joy. He wanted him to be happy. And He created food for him that tasted really good and that was nourishing to his body, and that gave him all that he needed to grow up and to mature and to come more and more and more into the fullness of the garden of God's delights. Beloved, the point here is that God is a God of pleasure, and God desires and designs our pleasure all the way down to this day. That has always been his hope, that has always been his delight, and the same is true of us today. So many people think that When you become a Christian, it's sort of the death of joy. How many times have you heard a person say that Christians just don't have fun? We don't pursue fun. It's no fun to be a Christian. I suppose in some sense that's true, because we don't pursue joy in the way that the world pursues joy. If you mean to say that I don't have fun because I don't go to clubs and have illicit sex and drink and do drugs and stay up all night and all that, well, you're right, I don't have fun. But the reason is because God has shown me that the things I used to think were fun turned out to be the death of my pleasure. What I know is that God created me for true, deep, lasting pleasure and He knows more than I do how to get it. And to this day, through Jesus Christ, He is working for our pleasure. All the thoughts of His mind, all the intentions of His heart, all the commands of His mouth are designed to maximize our pleasure. It was true in that day, it's true in this day. The world tells you that they know how to get you pleasure, but it's sweet in our mouth, bitter in our stomach. It feels good for a while, but it kills in the end. God's joy really tends to be just the opposite, doesn't it? Sometimes it's really bitter in the mouth, but it's so sweet in the stomach. Sometimes it's hard because you have to fight against your flesh, fight against the world, fight against the devil. You have to struggle and strain not to give yourself to the things that you know aren't truly joyful. So sometimes it's hard, sometimes it calls for suffering, but in the end, all that bitterness will turn to great joy, to life-giving joy, to eternal joy, in fact. God is a very happy God. That was true of him then, it's true of him today. It has always been and will always be true of him. And he desires and designs nothing more or less than our absolute happiness. I pray to God that he will help us to let that point sink in. At the end of verse 9, Moses mentions two specific trees. The tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Those become important a little later. I'll save any comments about them till that time. Just wanted to point out that he's now setting up the whole situation here by bringing that up. 
But for now, what he does is in verses 10 through 14, is he goes on to describe in a lot of detail in my mind exactly where the garden was. And I think what he was doing was signaling to his first readers that this garden and this story that he's about to tell them is a real place and a real story. Many things that are about he's about to say kind of sound like a fable. And I think Moses wants to say to them with all of his heart, this is not a fable. I was up on the mountain with God and I was enshrouded by His glory and He opened my eyes to many things. He helped me to see the beauty of creation. He helped me to see the reality of that garden. And He showed me where it was. And now I'm going to tell you exactly where it is. It would be a, a lot like Moses writing to us and saying, you know, you know that place where the St. Croix River comes right together with the Mississippi and right just north of there, the land is so plush and green and filled with life. Yeah, right in that place, that place is where the garden was. And his first readers would have been very clear that Moses was talking about a particular place and they could have gone to that place. We've never been able to determine where the garden is because uh, we do know where the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers are, but they may have moved over the years. Who knows? The other two rivers that he mentions we've never heard of, so we're really not sure where it was. But I promise you, his initial readers would have known exactly where it was. And again, for our purposes as well as theirs, I think it's important that we get the point. Moses is saying this is a real story. I'm not about to tell you a myth of the creation of man I'm about to tell you some of the details of how it actually happened in the presence of God when He created man. One more point here that seems significant to me in these verses. You notice in the river Pishon in that area, how it says that it was filled with gold and the gold was good. And then there was other kinds of precious stones. It just blows my mind because God created a garden for the first human beings that was not only pleasurable to the sight and good for food, but He put it right on top of Fort Knox. God desired their absolute wealth, their absolute pleasure. He reserved the best things that this earth has to offer simply for the man. He did not give it to the animals or to the birds of the air. He created it all and gave it to the man for our pleasure. And I've already made the point, but I just can't help but say it again and again. God is a God of holy pleasure, and He has always desired and designed our best pleasure. If, he, if we would just listen to Him, if we would just submit to Him, we would indeed come into His pleasure. Having established that the garden was a real place, Moses says in verse 15, that the Lord God took the man and put him in a garden of Eden, in the garden of Eden, to work it and to keep it. So God put this man in his palace of holy pleasure and he told him to till the ground and to steward the fruits of that ground and to enjoy the fruits of that ground in himself. He told him to be like God in a sense and to exercise dominion over the garden of pleasure. And interestingly enough, the word that he uses for put here in verse 15 is a little different than the word he uses in verse 8. If you look at verse 8, Moses also says there, that God put the man in the garden, and that word just means put. He took him from here, put him there. Verse 15, Moses uses a word that actually means rest. It means to bring somebody into your rest. And so God created this garden, and He brought the man into His rest. He brought him into that place where striving against God was non-existent, where there was peace and joy and eternal pleasure evermore. And you know as well as I do this theme of rest, and actually this particular word for rest 
gets picked up again and again in the Bible and it becomes a very important theme for those who are broken and now out of relationship with God to enter back into the rest of God. The rest of God does not just have to do with the cessation of labor. You can still work and be at rest with God. The rest of God has to do with being at peace with God. And in the very beginning of humankind, we were at rest with God. Working the ground, yes. Enjoying the fruits of the ground, yes. Stewarding, subduing, having dominion over the things of the ground, yes. But perfectly at rest with God. Perfectly at peace with God. And at the end of all things, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ Himself will be our rest. And even to this day is our rest. That whoever believes in Him has now come to be at rest with God. Whoever believes in Him no longer strives against God, is no longer at enmity with God, but now is at peace with God and has joy in God and has hope in God and has eternal pleasure in God. The rest of God was the beginning of humanity. Entering into the rest of God will be the end of humanity for all those who believe. Now in God's garden of holy pleasure, God only gave Adam two commands. One of them was positive, one of them was negative. Both were extremely easy to obey. One of them was a do this command, one of them was a don't do this command. The positive do this command was simply this, Adam, eat of every tree in the garden. You'll notice he didn't even forbid him the tree of life. He's saying to Adam, Adam, maximize your pleasure in the things that I've created for you. I created you for joy, have at it. Here is the garden of my delight. Indulge yourself. Completely indulge yourself because it's holy and it's good and I've given it all to you. The don't command, the negative command was simply, Adam, all these trees you may have, but do you see that one single tree? Don't touch that one. And the reason is, he even tells him the reason. He doesn't just give him a command. He tells him the reason. The reason is that when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. I have created you for life. I have created you for great and deep and godly pleasure. If you do that one thing I said not to do, you will kill life and you will kill your pleasure. So don't do that. Beloved, in that day and in this day, God's desire has been to maximize His glory in our joy and all of His commands are designed to that end. So when He gives us do commands and don't commands, positive ones and negative ones, just like with Adam, so is the case with us. He's simply trying to bring us into the fullness of what He's created us to be. And as we come into that fullness, we will discover true joy. This world, even this day, will offer us a lot of false joys. But you have to understand, your Father is a happy God, a very happy God, and He has greater pleasures And if we are willing, He will bring us into that pleasure. Now we know where the story is going, right? None of us is uh, really probably in suspense about where the story is going. We know that Adam's going to break that command. We know he's going to choose a moment of, of earthly pleasure over the garden of God's delight. And we'll talk about the details of that another week. But for now, even though we know where the story is going, I just really want us to let this sink in. God is a God of pleasure And He deeply desires and designs for our pleasure. Even in His wrath, which we'll see in Genesis 3 and Genesis 6 and other places all throughout the Pentateuch, we see that all God is trying to do is lead His people into repentance that they might have joy in relating with Him as they ought. 
He's a God of great pleasure. He wanted nothing more or less than Adam's pleasure, and therefore he had to address one more situation. The situation was very serious. Namely, it was that the man was alone. And the man had the consciousness to know that he was alone. It's one thing to know to be alone. It's another thing to understand that you're alone. It's kind of like saying it's one thing to know that we're going to die. It's another kind of suffering to be like Jesus and know when and how you're going to die. Adam not only was alone, but he had the capacity to know that he was alone. And this in the sight of God was not good. So you see there in verse 18, Moses wrote, Then the Lord said, the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fitable or fit for him. Several times in chapter 1 you'll remember that Moses wrote, God looked at what he had created, he saw, and it was good. God saw, and it was good. God saw everything that he created, and behold, it was very good on the sixth day. This is now the first time in the Bible where God looks upon something and says, that's not good. And so he decides to do something about it. He decides to make a helper for Adam, or the Hebrew word there is ezer. That word ezer really does mean helper, but I want to be careful that we don't get the picture in our minds of a servant, because that's not what it means. The word helper is used in a couple of other ways in the Bible that I think will help us understand what's going on here. One way is later we see in military conquests. When, let's say, the the tribes of Israel are fighting against somebody, and maybe they're holding their ground, maybe they're making a little bit of headway, but at the end of the day they know that their forces are just not strong enough to overcome the enemy. And so what do they do? They call out for an ezer. They call out for a helper. They call to Egypt or they call to other Israelites and they say, please come on and help us to conquer this enemy. So the picture is not of someone who is subservient and weak coming in to be a servant of someone who is strong. The picture is of someone who is capable coming in to help someone who has a lack, who has a need, who is not able to overcome on his or her own. She's a helper. She's coming to complete him, not to be his servant. Another very significant way this word is used is to speak of God as the helper, the Ezer of Israel. So we know for sure that God cannot be thought of as lesser than Israel, and yet God in all His might comes to be her helper. And so many of the names of God actually have this idea in them, the helper of Israel, the helper of the broken, the helper of what have you. Lots of names in the Bible have this description of God because He is a helper. So, the picture of a helper, even here in Genesis 2, is not of one who is lesser and weaker and subservient, coming to be the servant or the slave of one who is stronger and more dominant. Rather, it's the picture of one who is capable, coming to help one who needs help, who is not fully capable in himself. To call the woman the helper is to call her his completer. It's to assume that he has a lack, a weakness, and she's coming in to shore that up. And together they are strong. Together they are full. There was in that first marriage a clear order of leadership and submission. Adam was to be the head of the household. He was to lead, and Eve was to follow his leadership. But they played those roles as equals, beloved. She was not his slave. She was his spouse. They were equal. So he came to help And he would lead her and love her even as God had loved him. Man is not superior to woman and woman is not the servant of the man. She comes to complete him and he also completes her. In verse 19, look there with me. 
at what Moses wrote. He said, now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. I'm not going to go into the technical details here, but I do want to point out to you that the ESV and the NIV get this right when they say that the Lord God had formed the beasts and the birds and brought them to Adam. That's an important little detail. Because if you don't get that detail right, what you end up saying is that God created the beasts and then Adam in chapter 1, and then in chapter 2, He created Adam and then the beasts. But it's clear in the Hebrew here that, that what He's saying is God had already formed the beasts of the field, He had already formed the birds of the air, and now at this time He's causing all of them to come into Adam's presence to see what He would name them. And having given dominion to Adam, he actually allowed the man he had created to name all the particulars of his creation. That's really amazing to me. God actually delegated to his own creation the naming of his creation. It's a beautiful thing. Now, to be clear, be really clear about this. God knew what the outcome of this process was going to be in verses 19 and following. God was not seriously asking Adam to look at all the animals he had created and choose one of those animals to be his mate. God already knew there was no mate fit for Adam on the earth. And you've got to just think how long this would have taken. Think of how many beasts of the field and how many birds of the air there are. One after another, after another, after another. And Adam beholds their beauty. He beholds their design. He beholds their form. He names them. In this way, he subdues them. And yet there is no helper found suitable for him. God had created this process in order to to deepen in Adam the longing not to be alone. He was fanning into flame his passion to be in a relationship. He was causing day by day by day by day to go by with all of these alternatives that weren't working out to fan into flame his knowledge of his situation and the depth of his longing. I'm just sure of that. It was good for Adam to be with God. It was really good for him to be with God. He walked with God in a kind of fellowship that we really don't understand because there was no sin involved at all. He was at perfect peace with God. It was good for Adam to see all the things that God had created and to put his stamp by the Holy Spirit onto them by naming all of them. It was good for him to subdue the animal kingdom and have dominion over it, as it were. But all of that put together, beloved, was just not enough. Adam needed something more. He needed someone to be like him. He needed someone with whom he could walk and actually talk. All these animals were beautiful, but none of them could converse with him. He needed someone with whom he could seek the Lord and share the depths of his thoughts and his feelings and even share his physical body. Adam needed a helper. He needed someone to relate with him because in himself he was not complete. And I think that as he searched and searched, this knowledge and this longing grew. And so in verses 21 and 22, after spending so much time searching, and you just have to feel like the the weight of the desperation of wanting this kind of relationship is just weighing heavily upon Adam, and he's got to be really tired. And the Bible says that God caused a deep sleep to come upon him. And as he slept, God took one of his ribs 
And he used that rib to form the woman. The woman was not formed out of the ground. The woman was formed out of the man. And God brought that woman to Adam. As soon as Adam woke up and his eyes landed upon the woman, he was completely stunned and breathtaking, I'm sure. And I do think there was a measure of that because of the physical appearance of Eve. I'm sure she was very beautiful. God had designed her for His pleasure. He had designed the man for her pleasure. This was all part of His design. And I'm sure that when they looked at each other, they were stunned by their own physical appearance. But I don't think that was the main thing that stunned Adam. I think the main thing that stunned Adam is that after seeing all of these animals come by him one after another, one after another, one after another, he finally found one that was, the Hebrew says, like his face. It was like his face. This one is like me. This one speaks. I can relate with this one. I can have communion with this one. I can walk and talk and breathe and seek the Lord and live my life and share my feelings and even my body with this one. I think all of that lands on Adam in a moment and so he exclaims in these words, he says, this at last. When I hear those words at last, beloved, I just feel the desperation, the longing of his soul and the relief of finding this woman. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She's not like the other beasts. She's like me. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Or as the Hebrew reads, she shall be called Isha for she was taken out of Ish. Now, you Scandinavian ladies, don't make too much of the fact that the Hebrew word for man is Ish. Because... In that day, it was not a bad word, it was a good word. So go ahead, I'm sure you're going to tease us about that, ish, ish, ish. But in that day, it was, a, it was a good word, it was a beautiful word. The woman was made out of the man, so Adam says, She shall be called Isha, for she came out of Ish. She came out of me. She is my helper. She is my completer. She is the one with whom I can relate deeply, with whom I can seek the Lord and have dominion and live the rest of my life. Genesis 2 concludes like this, 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. I think verse 24 makes very clear that this story that we just read about, the events of this day, had an impact not only on the first man and the first woman, but that they relate to all men and all women for all time. God was going to use this man and this woman to bring forth other men and other women. And in His time, in His way, He would bring them together to, in a sense, recreate the scene in the Garden of Eden where the man finally discovers his helper and the helper discovers her help meet and the two are joined together and they become one. This story is not just about these two. This story is about all who one day would be married. And the clear implication of these words in verse 24 is that the marriage relationship is the most sacred of all human relationships, hands down, no other equals. It is so sacred that when a man finally discovers his helper and she discovers him, that man is to, in a sense, forsake his father and his mother who gave him life and cling to his spouse. In other words, they are to become less important. The very ones who gave him life 
less important so that she becomes ultimately important in his life. This tells me that the marriage relationship is the single most sacred of all human relationships and it must be protected at all costs. And just like with Adam and Eve, when the two finding each other in the timing and in the manner of the Lord and they come together, they do not simply come together in a sort of a legal contract. The two come together and before God they become one flesh. It's one thing to enter into a business partnership where separate people agree to work together. It's another thing for two human beings distinct always come together to form a, a sort of third thing, if you will, a one fleshness. They become, in some sense, one person. I think that the point of verse 25 is to help us understand a little bit about what this means. Again, Moses writes, the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. In other words, they were fully exposed to each other and they had no sense of disgrace. I think it's a mistake to let ourselves dwell too much in the physical aspects of this because I think the physical reality of their nakedness was pointing to something much more significant and that is that as human beings, they were completely open to each other with nothing to hide and there was no shame between them. There was no bitterness among them. There was no fighting. There was no arguing. There was no self-centeredness. There was no backbiting, no criticisms. They were in perfect fellowship with one another. They had entered into a deep and lasting communion or a koinonia. And that koinonia turns out to be, I think, the very center of what it means to be created in the image of God. These two were completely naked and unashamed. They shared every single thing they had and their physical relationship to one another was simply a visible sign of a much more profound invisible fact that the two had become one flesh. And that oneness, that communion, that koinonia was meant to speak of the glory of God. Earlier, well, I guess it was last year now, we spent five months pressing into the reality of what koinonia is, what fellowship is, what communion is. And we saw just how integral and how deeply related it is to life in Christ and more so to the being of God. We saw that koinonia within God is the core of who He is. In other words, God is three persons. One God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, united together deeply, deeply, deeply in love. And everything that God has done has flowed out of the core of this love. It is the meaning of what it, is, what it means to say, God is love. God is ever and deeply in love with Himself as the Father, Son, and Spirit love one another. All that they have done has flowed out of this love. And now they create a man and bring him a woman and join them together and they become one flesh and have deep and full and lasting and beautiful and very desirable and pleasurable communion with one another. That's the point of Genesis 2.25. They were in communion with each other. So Moses started at the beginning of Genesis 1 with this huge view of the whole universe. He hones our attention down to the earth and then the animals and then the human beings and then what it, what it actually happened when God created the human beings. And then he gives us a lens right into the depth of the relationship between the first couple. And we find that in that smallest view, as we look into that relationship, we end up seeing the very biggest thing. And that is a display of the being of God. 
We were created to image God. And the beauty of the communion of a husband and a wife is it screams about the being of God. That He is love, that His delight is communion, and that our highest joy is not in a garden, it's not in gold, it's not in precious stones. Our highest joy is in deep, deep communion. I don't know why God did not cause Moses to write these words down at the end of chapter 2. But I sure sensed the Lord's smile and I could hear Him say that God looked and saw the man and the woman united together in holy matrimony forever and ever till death do they part. And behold, He saw that it was very, very, very good. It was good. It was very good. Next week I'm going to come back and spend the whole message talking about what it means to be made in the image of God and how marriage relates to that. So I want to encourage you to read the end of Genesis 1 this week and and all of Genesis 2. Just take what I've taught you today, meditate your way through it, ask God to give you insight because I'm telling you, beloved, the more we understand about God's design for our families, the more our families will prosper. None of us will ever live up to the fullness of what God designed because we're all broken and sinful, but the path to joy is to honor the design of God. And so tomorrow, I want to, or next week, I want to lift up marriage as high as I can, show you how related it is to bearing the image of God, and pray God's blessings on our lives and on our families. Let's pray. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Holy is He who spoke a word and the universe leapt into existence. Holy is He who said that the land should come from the earth and created seas and land. Holy is He who commanded and vegetation sprouted upon the whole earth. Holy is He who created the birds of the air and the creatures in the sea and the beasts of the field. Holy is He who created man and woman in His image. Holy is He who brought us together in such depth of communion that it would reflect the being of His very self. God, I'm stunned at you. I'm stunned at who you are. I'm stunned at what you do. And I pray that you would help each of us to have a depth of insight that would impact the way that we live, that would impact the way that husbands talk to wives and lead their wives, that would impact the way that wives talk to and relate to their husbands and partner with him in the things God has called them to do, that would impact the way that parents deal with their children and train them up in the way that they should go. Oh God, lift our eyes up to see the glory of what you have done that we might know the joy of what you have commanded us inside of our marriages. And God, I want to say a word of prayer for those who have come from broken families, those who have experienced divorce, those who have found this sermon to be more painful than helpful. Lord, I want to ask your grace to be upon them. I want to ask, Father, that you open their eyes to see that your mercy covers 10 million sins. There's no brokenness that Jesus Christ cannot heal and turn into a great good. There's no wound that can't be used for the glory of God and the joy of our souls. So please, God, give us hope because we live in brokenness. Lift our eyes up to see the glory of what you've done. And Father, forgive us for where we've fallen short and heal us in our brokenness, I pray. Oh God, I love you, and I ask you to come and do a great work in this church in the coming weeks as we meditate deeply on these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.